Welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. A quick reminder, if you haven't already, please subscribe and like our podcast. We can be found on most streaming platforms. We're so grateful for everyone who's listening and excited to see and hear that our audience continues to grow at a steady pace. If you would like to be an official member of the TFA community, please go to our website, www.TeresaFreemanAssociates.com, and sign up for our mailing list. You'll have early access to podcast episodes, helpful resources, and upcoming events. Now, on to this episode, I speak with Michael Pryor, the principal of St. Timothy's Elementary School. This is no ordinary school administrator. In addition to his day job, Michael spends time boxing professionally and participating in his community theater. During our discussion, we hear about the special teacher who inspired him to teach, as well as what it was like growing up in a small town, playing sports, working with through academics, and even a great story about being able to stand up for others who really didn't have their own voice. Given Michael's role, he has a unique opportunity to observe and provide insight into what he's seeing uh, in the school environment with respect to our children. And I asked him about what he's observing as it relates to academic and social pressure, as well as what he sees that gives him hope about our future leaders. Lots of great info in this interview. Enjoy this episode. start with just telling us a little bit about your current role. I think um, when we interview people, we usually start there. Just it helps to give people a frame of reference. And then um, lots of good questions for you about your path to this point. Uh, sure. So in, in short, I'm principal of St. Timothy Catholic School in Chantilly, Virginia. Yeah. We, we have about, uh, we're a pre-K to 8 school and we have about 730 kids. We're the largest elementary Catholic school in the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And it's funny to think about that now go, as, as we step forward in the next year, what that may bring. And I'm not just talking in terms of enrollment. I'm just uh, bigger yeah. picture-wise. I'm wondering what next year is going to look like, as I'm sure both of you are as well. Yeah. Um, so principal of Catholic school, I love it. I don't consider it a job in the slightest. It's definitely a vocation. I love the kids, and uh, they are my energy. And so I just I love coming in every day. You can tell when, you know, we drop the kids off in the morning. I feel like you always have a ton of energy that you're exuding, and it always seems like super positive. So it's... Well, at 7.35, it might not be the case <laughs> as much, but, but uh, once the once the cars start flowing through and I have that interaction with the kids, then, yeah, like I said, they're the ones that, that keep it going, which is why, first and foremost, this has been a challenge on many, on many other fronts, but... Um, you know, not, not having that to feed off of is, 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 is tricky. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine, and I know um, I was even thinking about this, I'm sure when people see that I'm interviewing you or want to listen, they're going to be like, you know, want some sort of major substance about what's to come, and I'm sure it's still in motion and still trying to figure it out. And um, Well, the, uh, the plan for reopening is a bit complicated. Yeah, exactly right. Um, I mean, personally, I thought I thought y'all did a great job. I mean, it was super complicated and difficult circumstances. And from my perspective, I think you all did the best that you could with what you were dealing with. Right? It's just so tough. And I think that's the key. Is um, I heard a lot of a lot of parents and 
saw a lot of parents feedback on um, an email or, or on the Facebook page. It, it's tempting not to go there because we're in Fairfax County. So the, the common connection is, well, how did Fairfax County do it? It's apples and oranges in a sense because there are you know, millions of kids and we have, you know, we're a tight knit community. Did right. we comparatively? Yes, we got off the ground. And that's millions of kids who are, who are suffering and not right. getting their education for over a month. So right. um, I certainly don't take pleasure in, in their mishaps getting right. started. So it's a bummer for them, but I think that bought us some sort of some credibility in, in the short term. But next year we'll have to be a bit we'll have to up our game as well, and get to be complacent. The honeymoon, as they say, is over. <laughs> we're gonna have to. And, next. You know, we have a good friend that has a small business that we were speaking with yesterday, and I think, you know, we're all pressed to think creatively and differently about how we can go forward and move forward through this. And so, in some respects. I think that's a good thing because it shakes it up and you have to be creative. Um, but it's certainly, I think, in the education space, super challenging. I fully get that. Did you always know you wanted to be in education or how did you find your passion for for being in, in, in administration and within schools? The administrative part came later once I became a teacher, but uh, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. It was around fifth grade. Mm-hmm. I had my first male teacher, as I've, I've learned from a lot of um men in education particularly. Everyone has that teacher who they had or that influence in some way, shape, or form. And mine was my great teacher. And uh, I can't, I couldn't tell you, and this this goes back to the saying, you won't remember what they taught you, but you will remember how they made you feel. Right. Um, and I, do, I couldn't tell you what he what he taught. I don't even know if he was, if he, if he was interviewing here and I saw him teaching what I want to hire him. I know, couldn't tell you. But I know him as a human being, he connected with me. It helped that I saw him at uh, St. Joseph's Parish pretty much. Um, he was a football coach, and I love football. So he was just someone I connected to all around. And he was also like not, uh, he's of the old school in, in a sense that he was no nonsense in the classroom. And I was probably much nonsense in the classroom. So in that sense, I, I'm sure he had to lay into me a couple of times, but I admired him very much. And uh, he, he later, later was my confirmation sponsor. Wow. So that was cool. And, uh, I went off a path at the, when, I, um, when I entered college, I thought, oh, I'm going to go into something that's going to make me a lot of money. So I'm going to go into business and ended up getting a business minor. But uh, after two years of in the business world, I shifted back to education because I knew that was where my calling and where some of the, the gifts God gave me were. That was in education, interacting with the kids. And not to mention, in, at Pittsburgh, you have to uh, pass a calculus course to continue on in your degree and that was not happening <laughs> so wait you know we've uh, had we've had a couple of people on here bring up calculus as sort of this really? like yes on our on this i think you're the third person that's told us how bad calculus what like really successful humans that are like calculus about killed me it just yeah it's so interesting foreign, foreign language yeah and, uh, yeah i took a pre-calculus course thought okay let's prep myself for it an unnecessary pre-calculus because I just need a calculus, but I thought I can't go to the deep end. I got to <laughs> go to the shallow end. Well, it turns out the shallow end was filled with quicksand and <laughs> that was not going to work out either. Yeah. So I dropped that course and then really was reevaluating things anyway because my heart wasn't in it. You know, if you, you're, you're chasing money, you're going to be left poor in many other ways in the future. So I think that's so true. And I love that you had an experience with someone that really struck you in terms of your education. I'm curious, even in elementary school, were you someone that did well in school 
were you someone that it came very easy to, or did this person have an impact on you that helped you build confidence in that space? Uh, he definitely helped with the confidence piece. Um, as far as educationally gifted, no, not necessarily. I certainly had capabilities and, um, I discovered those again in college. Once I switched to education, it was something I was excited about. Right. I, I did super well and it was kind of, um, that on that same token, I'm in elementary school too. It was, you know, read this book and answer the questions at the end of the chapter. It's like, eh. yeah. <laughs> right, um, right. So I, I think it's hard to assess just based on grades that, oh yes, you were this, or I was, I was this kind of student, that kind of student. I know I was not a student who, who put in his best effort and my grades were indicative of that. So I, I did, I was an average student, but I, I didn't push myself as I wish I would have. Yeah, I think what's interesting, especially with with teachers, I I think that humanity of understanding that in that system, there's like certain people that thrive and to your point around being gifted, but there's a lot of us that are doing the best we can and it doesn't mean it can't work for you or you can't find a way for it to be enjoyable, right? So I think that's an important part for anyone that's listening and we hope that young adults listen to this and I'm sure you'll have quite a few given <laughs> the relationship with you at St. Tim's. But I do think just recognizing that there's a spectrum and not ever until you find that thing that you love to do, you know, you may not be like top of the class and that's okay. Yeah. And that goes, it lends itself to the conversation. I know we've probably heard so many times in education, but uh, should we let kids specialize and, and focus on their gifts and their, their passions at a young age and, my thought is always, you know, we have, that's why we have electives here. So we have opportunities for the kids to explore. Right. But we also realize that you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. It's important to have foundational knowledge across subject areas. It's, right. Um, I think of kids that go to college just to play sports, just for football, and then, God forbid, they tear their ACL. Right. And that one. And that's, that's, that's heartbreaking. And I, I get why. It's they're passionate. They're going, they're going. But one, if there, if there aren't, positions available in their field or if the, if, uh, if at a time like this, people are getting furloughed and they're not hiring in those right. positions, they got to have something to use their, I don't want to say fall back on that's such a negative, that's such a negative connotation to it, but something that they can shift their uh, passions towards. Right. And I just think it's ludicrous. And my, I was a product of this to, to expect someone at, you know, 12 or 14 or even 18 to know what they want. I just think, you know, we are all on our own path to figure that out. And, exposure to certain people at different times might help you to have that moment of like, oh, I love this, but it, it takes time. It's not something that happens super early for a lot of people. That's okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you're also a professional boxer, and I would love to hear about that experience. And so fascinated between the duality of that and your current role. But tell me just about how that came to be. You mentioned you played football, so maybe just talk about athletics in general for you and how much they played a part in your life and tell us about your, your boxing story. Sure. Growing up, I was a, I grew up in a small town, let me preface, down here in Northern Virginia, I realized kids specialize in sports at a super young age because they're going to focus on this sport solely so they can play it in high school. And we had 120 kids in my graduating class. We had more cows than people in our hometown. So in, in back in Greenwich, New York, you know, if you played football and you were a decent athlete on both sides of the ball, you weren't coming off the field the whole game. You know, had I been, had I been growing up down here at 100, 
3,540 pounds soaking wet, I don't know if I would have even made the made the practice squad. It's hard right. to say, but uh, grew up playing football and baseball were my two go-tos. I played basketball for a while, but then being a little guy, if you can't dribble, then that's not going to help you. So I gave that up, started running indoor track on a whim. The last minute was going to run indoor track, and something, it was literally last minute, like the, the, the week of tryouts, and that's where I ended up meeting my my wife. She and I connected there, and she was a uh, disclaimer. She, I was a senior. She was a freshman. doesn't seem like now it's, you know, we're just <laughs> we're two, and a, two and a half years apart. Right. Us with, but, <laughs> different different ages. But um, so, yeah, I thought that was that was a, a Holy Spirit moment, definitely for sure. Cause I never run track, and I had no intention of wanting to run track. I just thought I got to do something in between football season and baseball season. Landed there. But uh, going to college, I was going to play baseball at Plattsburgh. But um, I really wanted to focus on academics a bit because, again, going back to my lack of right. lack of rigor. Drive and, yeah, <laughs> yes, that's a good word for it. Um, I really wanted to focus, and it was two a days in the weight room and uh, baseball practice in the evening. And you know, you can't tell by the Zoom, but Mr. Pryor never never lifted many weights in his life. <laughs> anyway, so uh, that was out. I scrapped that and went home for the first summer, not playing sports, and I, I didn't know what to do with myself. Mm-hmm. And then. I learned there was a boxing gym in Saratoga Springs, which was 20 minutes from my from my hometown. I walked in and never looked back. And I love it. And to this day, I have I have my own key to the gym when I go back to New York. And when I go back to New York in, in just under a week, I am going to go to the gym. So there's not going to be anyone there, and I can just go in and do my thing in there. And yeah, uh, it's a beautiful sport, and I adore it very much. And so, tell me a little bit about because I really I don't know much about it at all uh, in terms of. Like I, I think that there's some sort of weight class association, right? So there's a certain group of people that they match you up with that have similar yeah. builds and whatnot. <laughs> but I don't yeah. even know if there's different types of boxing or what your specialty is. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, there's there are different weight classes, as you said. There's all the way down from minimum and, and straw weight, which is like 105 pounds, all the way up to heavyweights. Um, and heavyweight is 200 pounds and above. So that, that's a wide range. Yeah. So... I fight it in the welterweight division, which is 100, 147 pounds. When you get um, a promoter to sign you up for these fights or to uh, offer you a contract with fights to fight fighter fighter A, you can agree on different weights. Like if, uh, let's say he's typically 150 pounds. Um, so it, the promoter then will say, hey, we have we have fighter A for you. and He's typically a 150-pound fighter. So instead of 147, um, can we make this bout for 150 pounds and then so long as our team agrees to it, um, then that's no problem at all. But uh, typically, those kind of kind of things don't happen at like the higher and the elite levels. Right. There is one thing that I I should should put out there for everyone just to hear hear me say it because it's important. Um, I once had somebody say to me when I first turned professional back in the 2013. They said, "Wow, you are in the same rankings as Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather because I was in the same weight class." And I said, yes, that's true, but, uh, you know, they're elite. They grew up boxing. They have intentions to be world champion. Um, I had a decent amateur career and wanted to explore it further and not have regrets 10 years later and not do it. So there's a big difference. I don't have, in my wildest dreams, I have aspirations to to, to compete at at higher levels in Las Vegas and all those things. But um, realistically speaking, I have... I have a career, uh, my vocations, education, and I don't uh, see this going beyond 
a few more bouts um, just because it's a passion of mine. Um, so there is a big difference between there are different levels of professional fighters. There are club fighters or journeymen, which is what I would fall into, and there are prospects, and there are up-and-comers, and there are uh, you know world champions, those kind of things. And that is something I admittedly am not in, in that category. I've competed uh, and sport with as professional, those kinds of elite fighters in those sessions, I can see the difference. It makes me even hungrier to want to, you know, better myself. It was very evident, you know, the, the different the different levels. I think that's so interesting. It's such a good point around f- making space in your life for the things that you love to do and figuring out a pragmatic and practical way. So I have one of my older sons. My older son's is into sports. He's He's a good high school athlete. And there's been some discussion about does he want to pursue that in school and in college, exactly what you talked about in terms of that's a job, right? If you're going to really do that. And a bit, we've been to a couple of events and the people that are talking to the kids have said, really be clear about where you are in the spectrum of talent and, and be self-aware about that. And that you should certainly be picking schools because you like the school and where you want to go. Because to your point, you just never know where that might end up. And I think there's lots of options and ways to fit in your passions and interests if that can't necessarily be at that elite level. And to your point, who knows where it can go, right? If you're still dedicated and putting in the time. Yeah. And one thing I have to verbally address. Yeah. Um, not because she told me to, but uh, I, I have a, the, the main thing is that I have an overly supportive spouse who supports me in these endeavors. She encourages me regardless. I mean, Softball. I mean, I have a softball tournament this weekend. On the weekends and, and in the summer, I'm playing three, four nights a week. Out of softball leagues, she lets me audition for, for for plays. And five nights a week, I'm going to you know out to Warrington, 30 minutes away to, to have play rehearsal. And so that part is, is is super important. It also lends itself to exploring those things in your when you're younger, so you don't have. And I don't mean this in obligation is usually a negative term as well but when you don't have those other uh, right responsibilities those other right in your life yeah i mean i think it would be really hard as a spouse to watch you get beat up <laughs> so the fact that from a boxing perspective like that would be super scary i think well that's the beauty is i try not to do that yeah <laughs> well that's good <laughs> that's not the always, goal always successful. yeah yeah that is the goal so uh, you mentioned it briefly, but I am curious. I didn't know about the play and the acting interest. And so was that something you were also interested in as, as a young person? Did that uh, show up later? The interest was definitely there younger. I think I did a play um, when I was probably eight years old. I did The Wizard of Oz and I was one of the, you know, one of the munchkins. Yeah. And then uh, hadn't done theater again until moving to Virginia, coming to St. Tim's, and then had randomly went on Facebook, one of those pages and found a theater page for auditions and was just scrolling one day and saw, oh, there's there's a play that I'm familiar with. I'll, I'll give that a try. And became connected to the company in which I was working with and then did another role and then did The Christmas Carol and then did Wizard again. And then wow. uh, most recently did, did The Music Man. was the most recent performance. That's so cool. Do you think yeah. that um when you were a younger person, you said you did it when you were eight and then didn't really do it again. Do you think there was anything that prevented you as a as a teen or a young person from pursuing it? I mean, or were you just involved in a lot of different things? Or was there a fear in that, given that there's maybe some judgments that are made socially for someone that's going into theater? Like, I'm curious if that was an issue at all. 
especially if you're an athlete, like uh, those things aren't always. No, absolutely. And I know exactly what you're referencing. Cause there was, there were kids on our football team who had, there was a, a vocal group called Corral mm-hmm. in our, in our area. And some, some of the kids in the football team who were among the most vicious football players on the football field would leave practice, which is great. And I'm super uh, grateful that the, the coaches even insp- uh, encouraged them to, to do both things and let them leave early and supported that. Uh, but realistically speaking, you could, you'd, you'd hear the snickers from, from the others right. who, who would say this and that. To be honest, uh, not, not really. That wasn't a deterrent. More so it was the Wizard of Oz thing was, was family involvement and um, like our whole family went and did it. So that was, that was kind of neat. And I think it was just the fact that we as a family weren't doing the plays that that kind of subsided for a bit. Right. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates, your one-stop shop for soft skills development, speaking, coaching, and workshops. If you'd like to hire Teresa, Visit www.TeresaFreemanAssociates.com for more information. If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at tfreemanassociates.com. So you talked a little bit just a couple times so far about divine intervention and faith a little bit in the Holy Spirit. I'm curious if faith has always been a thread through your whole life. Is that something that your family exposed to you? And then was there ever a time where you, you know, individually made that choice? I know there's the like technical, you know, when in terms of growing up in, in Catholicism and like when you become an adult in the church. But I am curious just about your own journey with that and, and how that's played a part of your life in your life and maybe in some of your decisions. Growing up, it was always, I mean, we went to a very different Catholic church. We went to a traditional Latin mass. It was a, a society of St. Pius X Latin mass, which is traditional Roman Catholic masses. Uh, homilies are a bit longer. It's a bit, uh, it's a bit different than the Norbus Ordo mass, the traditional English mass that you'd see. It's also just a, a smidge different than a parish around here that had Latin mass. It's just a different sect of, of, the, of the Catholic faith. And so growing up, it was a bit more rigid. Serious, um, yeah. We prayed the rosary together as a family. We'd, uh, we'd go to mass together. We'd go to confession together. And the faith was definitely uh, something that was pushed. There are nine of us. There's, I'm the youngest of nine. So we'd all you know, jump in our big station wagon and, and go out there together. So in that sense, that was up until I was about eight or nine go to that church and then we found one we, we shifted to the english mass that was in our hometown of greenwich and then i was kind of doing it because it was just part of my routine and i knew i was told it was the right thing to do and, and i i enjoyed going to mass and i liked the priest and i got to see that my fifth grade teacher there like i mentioned earlier so i would ride my bike there and go to mass i won't name drop anybody but i can't say that all my siblings would have <laughs> done the same uh, right so the foundation was there but as far as the personal Part of it, I think I was being a good son, and not I wasn't consciously thinking I was being the good son in going to mass because that's what my parents told me to do. But realistically speaking, that's probably the, what I was doing at the time. I think when I went to college is when I um, became a bit more um, ingrained in my in my faith in a much in a much deeper level. It was uh, seeing kids who were a bit, and this is the no the norm. So the kids are out. You know, doing having their fun on the weekends, right. and I was never a, a partier or, or, or a drinker, and wasn't for me. And frankly, when people ask why, I say I don't know, it just tastes bad and it's expensive. Right. 
right. Um, right. I have a, my Coca-Cola is my Gatorades, and that's enough for me. But realizing that that God was still an important part when it was just my decision, and mm-hmm. I knew that there was, I had that, I still had that hunger for something deeper. Like I was, I still needed to be fed in that sense. And going to mass and receiving the Eucharist and still receiving the sacraments was something that uh, was of great importance to me. A great turning point. It was coming to that realization that um, it was a need. It wasn't just a Sunday obligation. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned too, like in terms of just making decisions or being a factor for you, like it's something that you rely on and it's a big part of your life still. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's so great. I do think having that opportunity to figure things out on your own, separate from what the family you know, rules are and whatnot, I think it's such an important part of anybody's you know, spiritual connection. So I think it's great that you had that experience and that it's still such a factor and obviously given your role <laughs> in terms of what you do you know that faith is i'm sure a big component of that for sure and, and it's it's necessary um the parents lay the lay the, lay the strong foundation the schools hopefully in partnership right. the Catholic schools will, will support what the parents are doing at home and um, continue to build upon that foundation but uh, the same reasons why kids don't get to vote you know they have to reach a certain age because i know if i went to the polls when i was a kid and i would have pulled the same levers as my parents and right it's just it would be another vote for my parents in that sense. Not too many ten-year-olds are deviating from their parents, right? Um, you know, for the other than the fact that they might want to deviate from their parents. And again, I won't name drop, but I can think of a couple siblings who've done that. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you just—I have a couple of questions just about your own childhood. Like when you think about—you told us a little bit about it—but in terms of your middle school and high school period, I like to ask people about that time period because I think it can shape and form how you navigate life. And I think sometimes you have experiences that are really challenging, or they're these big successes, and that just helps shape you. So I'm curious for you during that time period if you had any of those experiences or anything that you think. Um, would be helpful as people are listening and maybe are going through their own challenges or even, you know, t- successes that helped you? I would say the one thing that comes to mind, 7th and 8th grade, I can't think of much, which I would love to because I'm just thinking, oh, uh, I wish I had some neat anecdote to share <laughs> with, with, the, with the knuckleheads here at, here at St. Tim's. Right. Um, Scotty would love to hear some right. stories. A couple, one, one major thing, and it was nothing in particular. I just remember having a different feeling upon it. It was probably my... I want to say my 11th or 12th grade year. There was an instance with a with a kid who was, I guess, perceived as an easier easier target in that sense. Um, not a lot of buddies and st- stood out in that sense. And I remember just not even making a big deal about it or calling anyone out publicly or anything like that, but just saying subtly to one of my buddies that something like to the effect of, I, I wonder what he feels like after you say that to him or something like that, where I'm, I had the, the courage and it wasn't the sense of, oh, I have to do something. I have to stand up and do what's right. It was more just a natural instinct to want to help someone who was in a bit more um, vulnerable of the situation. I can't stress that enough because I can, in all honesty, I can certainly think of an instance that caused me, that instance that I mentioned caused me to reflect on what I probably did or said in ninth and 10th grade or even those 7th and 8th grade years. But it was a natural, there wasn't any anything that led up to it. It was just when I witnessed it from Maybe I had witnessed it from the outside perspective, but I wasn't directly involved. That's what kind of made me think, oh my goodness, this is a travesty in itself. Because whether or not the kid was affected by it long term, it's just that no, no person should have to feel down about themselves right. or about anybody. And, and especially in a setting like a school or an environment where they're supposed to be surrounded by peers. Usually, it's typically about stuff that the kids have no control over. And that's mm-hmm. the part that's, that's, that is the most heartbreaking. Of course, I don't 
believe in diminishing anyone's spirit on the stuff that they can't control, even if they're doing gross stuff on purpose. Or it's just heartbreaking to see. It. But it's especially heartbreaking when it's stuff that they can't control. And you look at you look at the the world today, and it's, it's interesting to see how quickly people are to to go at each other just based on stuff. You know, I, I can't I can't control that. It's how God made me, or what have you? It's how I was raised. That's tough. When you did that, were you at all afraid, or did you feel very like it was something that you just in that moment you're like, I have to do this, and it it was like to your I know you said it wasn't this huge moment, but I just am curious to go against a friend or to make that comment. Is there any fear of like being alienated because of that, or even being teased yourself because of that? I would say. And I, I don't use the word friend lightly. Uh, you know, there were, there were, I had plenty of buddies in, in high school, you know, guys that I would chum around with or see on the baseball diamond or on the, on the football field. But this, the person who I'm thinking of was actually a close friend. So he was somebody who I had a great relationship with, and he always pushed me to be better, yeah. better myself. So I knew that it would be well received, or maybe not well received. I just knew it wouldn't be poorly received, I guess. Yeah. He might have brushed me off and said, oh, I was just kidding. What's the big deal? And, I might not have said anything else after that, right. but uh, I know that he he had enough ability to self-reflect that even if he brushed me off then, probably was less likely to happen in the future. Yeah, I think it's so important to have people around you that challenge you and that you know are there to push you to be better in whatever regard. So the fact that you had a friendship like that, I, I, I'm a strong believer that, you know, who you pick uh, to surround yourself with and, and who you are, you know, the kind of people you're attracted to in terms of building friendships, like that's a reflection sometimes of how you feel about yourself. So picking those people that really want you to be better, I think is such a great gift. Uh, and it's it's not always easy, you know, when you've got someone that's maybe telling you things you don't want to hear, but in the end, it, it makes for a better experience, I think. I feel like you have uh, a unique perspective given your role, at least through, you know, 12 to 14, I guess you're 14 when you leave eighth grade, but, and maybe in your other years as an educator around, you know, what teens are facing in terms of just challenges or stresses. And I'm curious, given what you see and observe, what do you think some of those things are? I I know that as a parent, I have a sense, but I, I don't know that... The, the teens I see in my family are, are probably in a different light than what you get to see on a bigger scale, sort of stripped outside of the family environment. So I'm curious what you think about that or what you think some of the pressures are. Is this really a conference for Scott? Oh, that's hilarious. That's, that, that's a fair question. And, and it's funny. You see, when I was a classroom teacher, I'd go in and I'd say, oh, this, this kid is is xyz and so so many times they'd say it just but parents would say my kid or, or what <laughs> right it's just it's funny how different different perspectives or different environments can show a different side of, of right of and i'm from every parent's perspective they always say well, i'd rather than act that way at home than at mm. school because that's a reflection of, of me and you know which is fair but to answer your question i think it's the temptation this is this is goes draws on the, the philosophy that we have at, at st tim's we're trying to really push to instill it. It's just removing, realistically speaking, as many temptations as possible. I was going to say all temptations, but that's almost impossible. But taking away as many temptations as we possibly can to set the kids up for success. I go back to, I said this adage a hundred times, but you know, you, you leave a birthday cake in front of a kindergartner and you say, don't touch that cake. I'm going to be right back in a second. 
and you go out and you come back in, you better not be upset with the kid if they have cake on their face. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's just, you're, you didn't set them up for success. You dangled the temptation in front of them and mm-hmm. they took it because that's our human nature. It's, we want them to know that they're, they're old enough. They should be able to say no. Yeah, ideally, that'd be nice. But realistically speaking, it's, it's why not just not leave it there and then it wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Then we're all happy. So I went off on a Well, I, you were talking about temptations. Do you think that creates stress, I think, is the connection you're making maybe that the if you think about them being under stress and pressure. Sure. Um, it, it's the pressure around them given typically coming from not necessarily directly from their friends, but mm-hmm. I think uh, the envy piece plays a lot into it. It's like, oh, that kid, he's, he's great at sports. How is he reacting? How does he talk to the young ladies? Or how does he interact on the football field? I'm going to start doing that, or I better start doing that, or I'm not going to be as uh, well-received as he. So it's the pressure in a lot of cases indirectly, but sometimes directly come from the friend, like the nudging on. You don't see that as much. Hey, hey, go do that, go do that. But it's more just the, the instinctual, I want to please that group, and I love my laugh. So I'm going to go do X, Y, and Z. Right. So I think at, our, at one of our middle school PLCs this year, uh, professional learning community, when teachers all meet together, mm-hmm. we showed a video, and I'm trying to think, it was like brain science or brain games, something like that. And it was a video of kids driving a go-kart. And the kids were driving around the go-kart, or driving around the track in the go-kart with no, with no audience. Um, and they were following the rules. They were doing exactly what everyone told them. Then, same kids, they put an audience around them. Kids their age, older kids, and had them cheer. The rules went out the window. They were running over cones. They were playing bumper cars. It's that instinctual, ooh, I have an audience. I need to please them. So hmm. that's just a natural thing, I think, in many cases. We do have a lot of kids here that have that strong resistor inside them just saying no don't do that don't do that but um to a lot of our kids especially our our young hormonal young boys they feed off that and that, right. that that's what gives them energy and excitement and then right after when you pull them aside you say, scotty and i'll use scotty as an example scotty why'd you do that i don't know and you know what he's probably not lying right. um right when you lead him to it you think you were trying to be trying to make everyone laugh yeah probably oh okay because he's doing something that's not characteristic of him, but it's that uh, excitement that he's feeding off of, or that that uh, desire to make right. everyone entertained. So that that's they're up against the natural piece of that, and they're up against I think just the the indirect and direct pressure of the peers. Mm-hmm. And then what do you think about given that you're a private school, just the academic pressure, and the need to succeed in that space. And the competitiveness that's, I think, pretty, I don't think people would challenge me if I said that Northern Virginia, it's fairly competitive and there's a lot of pressure on on these kids. So I'm curious from your perspective, if you're seeing that and feeling that. I feel it from, I feel that the kids feel it. Yeah. But um, it's like when the teachers say, if teachers will sometimes say, I'm not going to be able to get through this curriculum. We got to do this, we got to do this, we got to do this. And my always retort is, you know, what happens if you don't get to where you need to be? What happens? Well, then I didn't get through the curriculum. And then the answer is, okay. You know, it's (laughs) when kids come, when I taught second grade, if kids come into second grade without all the first grade requirements fulfilled, what do I do? I have to adjust. Adjust to the group of kids in front of me and tailor my lessons to meet the needs of every individual student. 
Mm-hmm. Easier said than done, of course, but there can't be the expectation. They must come to me with X, Y, and Z, and if they don't, oh, then if they don't, then I still got to teach them, so I have to do something. And that's why the old-fashioned whole group instruction is kind of has died down so quickly because we realize that kids are on different levels and teachers teach at different paces. And if they come from different district, if they come from a different state, different standards, there are so many holes that just naturally create, and that's right. a flaw of our education system, but it's also one that might be irreparable or it's much more challenging to repair, I should say. And that's why the the national standards of Common Core were trying to be pushed hard to, to so everybody followed the same standards and it makes a lot of sense there were certainly a lot of holes in that sense but going back to the the pressures i know that the kids feel the pressure but i can tell you that if they don't feel it from the school hmm. i think if they feel it from anywhere they feel it from home yeah yeah i think that's really good to know and i think you know we feed it as parents and then also uh i'm trying you know i have three different boys and i'm really trying to understand each of them uniquely and see them in terms of their own gifts and it's you know we have such a tendency to homogenize everybody right and say you're all a unit and you should all be doing this this way right whether it's by grade however you want to categorize people and so I think it's incumbent on us as parents to to be, be unique in that and try to make sure we're seeing them for their strengths and gifts and help them. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So uh, before I leave the kind of kid topic, because I was asking about stresses and pressure, I'm sure you have good news too. So I would love from your, from your observations of perspective, what do you see that's encouraging? Like, what do you see that gives you hope? You know, if you think about these are our future, right? These kids in terms of they're going to be leaders one day and hopefully taking care of us as we age. <laughs> so what are some of the things that you see that, that are positives or that you're encouraged by? You know, it's hard to pinpoint specifics, but I can tell you that there, there are millions of encouragements throughout the building on, on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, I think the level of natural compassion or instinctive compassion is present. And I think in order to develop into a good human being, who, you know, a faithful, faithful servant of, of Christ, I think that's a necessity. It comes easier to some than others, but it's like when I see a young man, and I actually, I don't, I don't think I still have the video on my phone, but it probably uploaded onto the computer. But when I see a video of a young man, a, a gal in front of him dropped all of her books, and I was able, just there at the right time, and I saw him start to bend down, so I got my phone out. It was way down the hall. He couldn't see me doing it. He put his books down and then picked up all of her books and gave them to her. Not for anything, not because he knew I was holding my phone or anything like that. It was just because. And I think that's uh, that in itself is encouraging when you know we do different different projects around the school and um, to try to intentionally challenge the kids' humility. Mm-hmm. And because you see a lot of inspirational things that go on on the internet. You know, I think of I think of the the verse and I I can't think of what it's from, but it says never let your left hand when you give alms give it in secret never let your left hand know your right hand is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but at the same time if someone's shooting a video of themselves giving some of their hard-earned money to a homeless person that's a good thing my thought is just oh i wish they did it without the video but it's still it's still a good thing and i would never comment on a public forum saying oh i wish you didn't right. do it without the video but it, it's just putting the kids to that test and there's one project that we, we used to do in creative writing where the kids would have to write a letter to a teacher of their choosing in the school and give it to them, but they couldn't sign their name or allude to who they were. And then to plant 
um, an even more challenging seat in front of the kids, I had those teachers go to each individual kid's classroom and say, I heard that whoever wrote me that letter is in this class, and I just wanted to say thank you. And the kind of just yeah. that an intentional drop in the – this is me saying, avoid all temptations, and, but that's me and dropping, dropping the temptation in front of them. That's contrary to what I said earlier, of outing themselves. But it's that, that satisfaction of knowing that you can fight for something and not getting reward. So that was kind of like the reward of it. So they could hear the person being so grateful and that, that inkling inside you to say, yeah, it was me. It was me. Right. It was me. So I would say those kind of things are happening all the time. And kids are, they have beautiful and pure souls. And yeah. it's nice to see those in action. And you see, you see that I... every day. If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at tfreemanassociates.com. I love that you talked about humility and, you know, I feel like we can all benefit from, you know, challenging ourselves on that front. But I do think kids, um, I'm not sure what, what's changed or how it's evolved, but I definitely feel it's hard to, as a parent, it's hard to in, instill that in a way that you're seeing it in action. So the fact that you're purposefully and intentionally doing that, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> and, you know, know that, you know, some of us are trying to do it at home. It, it's just, it's, you know, it's challenging to, to, we're like blessed beyond belief in terms of everything that we have. And then how do you balance that with um, what it means to, recognize that and then give back in a way that's not about you you know and that that's that and everything is the key and that was the the whole purpose for our theme this year of, of gratitude that's why we picked yeah. the, um, the specific quote from saint john paul ii uh and we have so much around us it doesn't it doesn't diminish us at times when things go awry in our lives we might say someone else might say well at least you're not at least you have a home and Right, um, and that's certainly not to diminish anyone's suffering because that's the world that they know. And to me, that is, I, I am suffering. I'm hurting inside for whatever reason. And that's how the theme of gratitude lends itself, especially being in northern, living in northern Virginia, as you mentioned. If you hear, you always hear people say, "Oh, first world problems," and it's kind of funny when you think about, even when I think about myself, it's, uh, darn it, our Wi-Fi's not working. Uh, I feel myself starting to get irritated. I'm thinking. Right. You know, I kind of, I kind of chuckle, and especially now when the school's empty, I have that time, that moment, being you know one of the only people in the building to have that me time to where I can reflect quietly before I go publicly complain about how tough my life is. Right. Five for ten minutes. Right. Right. It's embarrassing just to say that out loud, isn't it? I know. Uh, trust me. I'm, I know. I know. Let me ask you. It's a little bit off topic or a little bit of a tangent. I just have a couple other questions. I'm interested. Part of it is the discipline I think related to being an athlete but just in talking to you and certainly in your role to be good at what you do you know I'm curious about people that are successful and certainly about people that have found this intersection of doing your passion and finding ways to infuse that in your life I'm curious what habits some people call them rituals like what are some of the things that you do that help you be in the right frame of mind that you think have helped you be successful just in terms of your own definition of what that is like I do think people young and old are always looking for tips or ways of living that help to breed 
success or, you know, energetically or otherwise. So I'm curious if you have some common things that you do that's helped you. Yeah, I would say in reflecting on that, I saw that question you had said, but in reflecting on that one in particular, yeah, uh, I one thing specifically comes to mind, and that is to find someone, find that friend that we were talking about earlier, that friend who is willing to hold you accountable, doesn't allow you to make excuses, is is you know compassionate and understanding to to your needs, and if you don't meet a certain goal because of you know this terrible thing happened, that it's they they have a level of compassion, but somebody who's not gonna always let you off the hook. But with respect to that friend, having that friend who you could publicly and openly share your goals with. And by goals, I mean a smart goal that has an end date. I want to be able to do this within 30 mm. days. I say a friend just because a spouse, it's easy to, you know, we're all thinking, yeah, they, they might be a bit too compassionate and too understanding. And I might have a really good reason why. And I had washed the dog that night and yada, yada, yada. So to find someone who doesn't offer you that out, connect with them share your goals with one another and hold each other accountable check in every couple of days how you doing on this how you doing on that and when we have our uh, leadership group at, at the school for the uh, middle school boys uh, next year we'll have for, for for scott's grade we would sit down and we'd share what our goals were for 30 days and even in that group i would share a goal because this is these are five kids who aren't going to let me off the hook probably and are, who are going to check in on me and say mr Pryor, how you doing on that i think one of mine for this year was I will be able to play this song on the piano within 30 days. Mm. And they know my goal. Even if I am really busy, I don't want to have to report back to them in 30 days and say, yeah, I didn't do it. Mm. Now that might happen. The follow-up question to that should be, okay, you didn't reach your goal. How far did you get? It's to assure that at least you're starting and at least you're trying to make the attempt. It's not throwing in the towel in the first round to make a boxing reference. But that, that accountability piece is so pivotal. So I would say, have your goals posted publicly. I always have what I want to accomplish, uh, whether it's in the next year or the next 30 days, I put those on my fridge and they're a daily reminder. And then anybody who's in the house can see that those are my goals and they might just off the cuff say, hey, did you ever end up doing this? And me wanting to be, I guess it, it, to, to, to a degree, in that sense of people pleaser and that I wouldn't want to have somebody asking me say, yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't start that. Like to me, that's, that's an embarrassment factor. I want to, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. So putting it out publicly, having someone you can hold you accountable and challenge you to be a better version of yourself is, is absolutely pivotal. Mm -hmm. Cause although you might have the willpower to do it yourself, it's much easier to, to quit when you're, when no one else is watching. Right. Right. I love that. And so just goal, being goal-oriented also seems important to you, having a goal, meeting that goal, um, yes. you know, the, the benefit of feel, like measurable goals that you can actually see and feel, you know, see and feel, so to speak, and then accomplishing those is like a big confidence booster, I think. And when you do that, then you can stretch, you know, create bigger ones or tougher ones. As you know, and we've talked a little bit about this already, I'm hugely passionate about soft skills, particularly in young adults and driving some development in that space. I'm curious, as you observe these kids and as you think about it from your perspective, if you had to name one or two that you think are really critically important that you would like to see more of in terms of kids as it relates to their soft skills. So when I say that, I'm talking about communication and obviously that's a huge topic, but 
it's it's as simple as looking at people in the eye and, and having a good connection with a human. Um, but then even more complex, you think about influencing and collaboration and being able to present effectively. I'm curious when you think in the context of those skills, where do you see or what would you say are some critical ones that people should be focused on developing? You know, you mentioned uh, two things. You mentioned presenting and collaboration. Those are two things that always stick out to me. I can picture at college and even during grad school when people would be doing a PowerPoint, even some of my professors doing a PowerPoint, and what would they do? They'd read the words off the screen. <laughs> my goodness, that drives me crazy. Um, yeah. I, I guess because of the social, because that's where my my social intuition kicks in and I feel uncomfortable for them, even though other people might not be thinking that. Yeah. I like put my head down because I don't want to feel that for them. So uh, that one always gets me. Having the, the comfort or, or the level of expertise or level of rehearsal or for on stage with the lines. Right. To go out and say what you're saying confidently, to know the topic that you're talking about. You can't just, okay, you're going to talk today about this. Hello, my name is Michael. Prior, you know, it just it, it, it doesn't right. flow very nicely. You're gonna have people sleep in 30 seconds. Right. So I'd say if you know you're presenting about something, you have to, you have to know what you're presenting about. It can't just be something handed to you. You can read off a cue card or off a off a teleprompter. And we see that with the news. And when people read off the teleprompters, if it's something they're passionate about, you can tell the difference between right. their passion versus they're just reading what's written. Um, the other thing that you had mentioned was collaboration and. I see this so many times in the younger grade classrooms, especially. They'll say, okay, kids, we're going to go into group work. All right, you four together. I always thought when I write on their eval- or, uh, observations is, have they been taught how to work in groups? Because mm-hmm. it's that, that, oh, I, well, I just, they work together and they do the project together. But do all four kids talk at once? Do you have four alphas talking? How do you balance out the personalities? How do you, are there um, roles within that group? Who's the who's taking notes? Who's watching the time? Who's spearheading the questions? So that one's a big one. I think for us as educators, we have to make sure that kids, and before we put them to a task, we have to make sure they know how to do that task. This past year, we had for Scott's first year was uh, we had mass twice a week, mm-hmm. Wednesdays and Fridays. The K to five went on Wednesdays, and the middle school went on Fridays because there was the interpretation that kids should know how to be prayer partners in their middle school right now. But they had never been taught or they didn't know and they didn't hadn't been taught the what the purpose of the mass was and why it's important to do this and have your prayer partner do this so that's what the first eight weeks of school were for kind of drill that into the older kids so that we can expect them to be prayer partners because they've gone over in class they've gone over it here and there so the other thing that comes to mind especially was for the number one soft skill i would say is i think of saint Teresa of calcutta she says uh, greet everyone with a smile a smile is the first step in love something to that effect. And I think that is so crucial. And so often you'll see, and I'll, I'll pick on middle school because that's the awkward and un- un- uncomfortable right. age that they're at. They'll walk down the hallway and they'll walk right by somebody. They'll either put their head down or they'll pretend like they're doing something and it's so subtle. It's like not <laughs> subtle. Right. Uh, right. That's when Mr. Pryor calls them out and makes them uncomfortable just for the sake of his own enjoyment. But, <laughs> So yes, yeah. knowing even if it's just a nod or something so simple as that can go such a long way, or even just a smile. Yeah. And, and so I think that is what that's where the connection starts. And if you don't have that start of a connection, that's that's your first impression right there. That's everything. So 
setting that first impression. I mean, you look at the ladies in our front office, so they come in, Miss Hoyle's got a big smile on her face. Whoever that newcomer is into our building, they just got, you know, a touch of love that comes from St. Tim's from that smile. Right. So I think that's the number one thing. I love it, and I couldn't agree more. And I think what happens is people forget to smile. They just forget that it it also brings you energy by doing that. So just being intentional and thinking about one of the things I, I talk a lot about and I have in my workshops is helping them be more self-aware, outside in versus inside out. So because they're just, it's their age and that's developmentally where they are. It's everything's happening to them, right? Well, my goal is let's just take a tiny step and have you see yourself from the outside and what what would you, you know, what do people see and how do you show up in the world? I think you can ask that to a 13, 14 year old. And if they really think about it, they probably know. And so I love that you challenge people and maybe, you know, hey, you know, get them to look up, <laughs> get them to smile. It's, it's great. It's so important. Yes. Uh, so last question is really when you think about, I feel like I could talk to you forever, but I don't want to keep you. When you think about young Mr. Pryor, and <laughs> is there any advice or counsel you would give him in terms of based now on your life experience and what's happened for you? Is there anything you would share with him? Or, I mean, it's interesting that you're in a profession where you're working with a lot of young people, but I am curious, maybe even personal to you, what advice would you give yourself? I'm big on when kids are like dropped off in the morning and they go back to the carpool reference. I'm very big on showing the gratitude to their parents. Mm. So that's that's something if I would I try to instill in the kids. And by instill, I don't mean model because they don't see me around my father. But it's uh, it's something I'm constantly on them about. Uh, oh, I didn't I didn't hear you. Did you mumble thank you? Because I didn't hear the thank you. And they'll return. They'll say thank you, mom. Um, they, you know, they'll go through the motions just to appease Mr. Pryor. But uh, it's that's something that really has to be habitual and. It is a tough time for them, but if I could go back to that younger age, Mr. Pryor, I would say be grateful for those who are who are in front of you. Mm, I like that a lot. Thank you so much for your time. This was really great, and I loved learning more about you and, and having this conversation. I think uh, certainly people at St. Tim's, I hope they listen because I think I'll get to know you a little bit better too. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy to help. Thank you, Michael Pryor. I really enjoyed our discussion and so happy we had a chance to get to know you a bit better. There's a lot of great information in this interview, and I know it will be helpful to parents and young adults. Good luck this year. You and the team at St. Tim's are off to a great start, and we're so thankful for all of your efforts. As always, a big thank you to Missy, the producer on this episode. A reminder, if you like this discussion, please subscribe, leave comments, and rate Relatable. We can be found on most streaming platforms. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and the TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. <laughs>